that was youth with youth's pace, swift with the hope of dreams. The horse turned itself towards the sea and shook itself three times as it leapt from sand to surf. There you are, my friends. Happy New Year. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed. Some time just about every day filled with stories for you and your family. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you. And uh, I want to remind you before we get going that you can find uh, all of the episodes of the show, more than a thousand episodes of The Appleseed, at our archive. BYUradio.org slash Appleseed is where you can find all of them. And of course, you can find uh, the podcast by Googling The Appleseed Podcast. You can take us with you on your mobile device, even if taking us with you means just going in the other room these days. We're so happy to share stories with you and so happy to hear from you as you uh, listen and enjoy. You know, you can contact us at theappleseed at byu.edu. Now, today we've got some really great stuff coming. Uh, we've got a, a story from Stephen Crane, the author of The Red Badge of Courage. We've got a story from uh, Brian Fox Ellis, the Illinois storyteller, who really tells stories from, well, for a lot of historical American stuff, but also uh, a lot of really wonderful uh, British Isles stuff, too. And he'll share a story of O'Shane, the son of Finn McCool, part of the great mythical Irish family of adventurers. And uh, you won't want to miss that. There's also a little bit of Alton Chung coming up with a Japanese folk tale. And uh, gosh, it's just going to be a great hour. We're so glad to have you with us. And we thought we'd start with uh, this piece. You know, this is a, a story from Stephen Crane. Now, Stephen Crane, uh, a, a lot of people read The Red Badge of Courage, right? You read it in high school or whenever you're assigned to read it. And I first became acquainted with Stephen Crane's short stories when, in college, I was asked to read The Bride Comes to Yellow Sky, a story about, uh, well, it's a story about a a sheriff, right? A Texas marshal named Jack Potter, who's returning to the town of Yellow Sky with his bride. And Potter's nemesis, the gunslinger Scratchy Wilson, he's all ready for a gunfight with his old nemesis, right? But when he sees the sheriff with his bride, he changes his mind. And I loved that short story. I thought it was a short story that captured kind of some ideas about the death of the romantic American West ideas about moving on from the toys of your childhood. And one of the things I really liked about the short story is when the gunfighter, when the gunslinger, Scratchy Wilson, realizes that things were no longer as he thought they were, right? And that seemed to be kind of a characteristic of some of the Stephen Crane short stories that I read, this moment where a character realizes that things were no longer the way that he thought that they were. Now, Stephen Crane was born in 1871, and he started writing at the age of four and started publishing articles when he was 16. So he was a young guy when he started to write some of the things that he wrote. He went on to influence a lot of people, including folks like Ernest Hemingway and, of course, every high school student who was ever made to read The Red Badge of Courage, that story about the soldier who flees from the field of battle and who is so ashamed of his cowardice that he longs for a wound, right? the red badge of courage and in a subsequent battle he's out front as the standard bearer of the army stephen crane died young he was not quite 30 years old when he died 
And uh, this story, The Pace of Youth, is one that you'll enjoy. We meet the father, Stimson, right at the beginning of the story, and he's glaring at what he, again, perceives as a young guy making eyes at his daughter. Here's The Pace of Youth by Stephen Crane. The Pace of Youth From a short story by Stephen Crane Stimson stood in a corner and glowered. That young fellow, he whispered to himself, he better quit making eyes at Lizzie. He strode over and looked at a sign. Stimson's mammoth merry-go-round. It was enormous. The letters were as large as men. There was a soft sound of crashing surf, mingled with the cries of bathers coming from the beach nearby. Overhead in the air, a lazy seagull swung and circled slowly. Within the merry-go-round, there was a whirling circle of lions, giraffes, camels, ponies, goats, all glittering with varnish and jewels that caught the reflected light from the mirrors above. They swept on in a never-ending race as the music clamored around them. A host of laughing children rode, bending forward like cowboys, squealing with glee. Every so often they leaned out to grab at iron rings that were held out on a long wooden arm. Down on benches, crowds of people sat watching. Some called out, Be careful, or you almost got it. A young man stood on a small raised platform. It was his job to manage the wooden arm and the rings. When they were all in the hands of the jubilant children, he held out a basket, into which they returned all the rings except the precious brass one. That could be exchanged for another free ride. The young man stood all day on his platform, putting on rings or holding out the basket. He was very busy. And yet Stimson had noticed that the fellow frequently found time to turn and smile at a girl who shyly sold tickets from inside a metal cage. By Jiminy, that fellow is smiling at my daughter. The girl often peered between the wires in the boy's direction, and once he noticed her looking, she usually turned her head away quickly to prove to him that she was not interested. At other times, however, her eyes seemed filled with a tender worry for his safety on the platform. As for the young man, these glances filled him with confidence, and he stood carelessly, gallantly upon his perch. This silent courtship was conducted over the heads of the crowd who thronged about the bright machine. Soon enough, a subtle understanding and companionship grew between them. They communicated all that they felt. The boy told of his love, reverence, and hope for the future. The girl told him that she loved him, that she did not love him, that she did not know if she loved him. The love affair continued, not without anger, unhappiness, even despair. The girl once smiled at another fellow who came to buy tickets, and the young man on the platform saw the smile and was filled with gloom and rage. For five hours, he did not once look at the girl, punishing her with his indifference. When he finally did look and saw that she seemed more cheerful than usual, he suffered greatly. He concluded that she did not love him. Then... Suddenly, swiftly, the clouds vanished, and their skies were blue again, and they dwelt in peace. They fell and soared, and soared and fell in this manner until they knew that to live without each other would be a wandering in deserts. They became so engrossed in their personal drama that the language of their eyes was as obvious as if it had been written in letters large as men. 
This has got to stop, Stimson said to himself as he stood and watched them on that day. Of all the nerves! Stimson was a brave man and never hesitated to deal with a crisis. He strode over to the ticket cage. Say, you'd best quit your grinning at that fool. His daughter looked down. She was unable to withstand her father's fierce eyes. He turned from his daughter and went to the platform. He looked up at the young man and said, I've been speaking to Lizzie. You better attend to your own business, or there'll be a new man in your place next week. The young man practically fell off his perch. All right, sir. He, too, was unable to face the great Stimson. One evening, a week later, a friend came to the ticket window and invited the girl to join her for a walk on the beach after Stimson's mammoth merry-go-round closed for the night. The young man on the perch saw this, and into his mind came an idea. When the two girls started for the beach, he wandered off aimlessly, but he kept them in view, and as soon as he was sure that Stimson couldn't see him, he followed them. For a time he kept at a distance, afraid to approach. At last, however, he came up, trembling, to where they stood. Lizzie, he said. She wheeled around. Oh, Frank, you frightened me. He stuttered. Well, you know, I... The friend, sensing the uncertainty in the air, came to the rescue. Won't you walk on the beach with us? The three walked on until the friend stated that she wished to sit down and gaze at the sea alone. They politely urged her to continue with them, but she refused. She wished to be alone. So the two young lovers went on. Jenny's awful nice, said the girl. You bet, replied the young man. They were silent for a while. At last the girl said, You were angry at me yesterday. No, I wasn't. Oh, yes, you were. You wouldn't look at me. No, I was just putting on. Though she had, of course, known it, she grew indignant and flashed a resentful glance at him. They were very happy. They vaguely wondered how the purple sea, the yellow stars, and the busy crowd under the electric lights could seem so slow and lifeless. One day, when business paused during the hot afternoon, Stimson went into town. Upon his return, he found that the popcorn man was keeping an eye on the cashier's cage and that nobody at all was managing the wooden arm and iron rings. "'Where in thunder is Lizzie?' the popcorn man muttered. "'They've... they've gone round to the house.' Stimson stormed home. He found his wife in tears. "'Where's Lizzie?' "'Oh, John, John, they've run away. I know they have. They drove by here not three minutes ago.' They must have come on purpose to bid me goodbye, for Lizzie waved, and then before I could get out to ask where they were going, Frank started the horse running. Stimson roared, Get a hack! Get my revolver, do you hear? Oh, John, she begged, not the revolver. He ran hatless out into the street. He finally saw a cab and charged it like a bull. Into town, he yelled as he tumbled into the back seat. The bouncing carriage went near the lake, and Stimson saw a buggy on the highway that led to the next town and beyond. He recognized a bonnet in the back seat. There, there they are, in that buggy! The driver became inspired by the chase. The horse galloped swiftly down the path. The wheels hummed, and the old carriage wheezed and groaned. Stimson, in the back seat, sat upright, 
without expression. Then suddenly his voice would howl, Go! Go! You're gaining! Faster! Ahead, the other carriage flew, drawn by the eager spirit of a much younger horse. Stimson could see the top of the buggy bouncing. The little window in the back was like an eye, taunting him. He began to feel powerless. He was overcome by a sense of age. That other vehicle, that was youth, with youth's pace, swift with the hope of dreams. He began to understand those two children ahead of him, and felt a strange awe at the power of their young blood. The sun caught the window and it seemed to wink at him. Soon their buggy became so small that Stimson could no longer make out anything. At last, the driver drew in the reins and slowed his horse. No use, sir. Stimson sank back with the grief of a man who has been defeated by the universe. He put his hand up to his bare hot, balding head. At last he made a simple gesture. It meant that, after all, it was not his fault. The Pace of Youth, a story read for you by Barry Stewart Mann, a story written by Stephen Crane, who, of course, wrote The Red Badge of Courage and lots of other stuff, too. And, uh, you know, I, I hear that story and I think about Stimson sort of realizing as he watches the getaway of these two young people, one of them, his daughter, that he can't quite keep up anymore, right? That there's an energy to the young that he no longer possesses. Well, that has put me in mind of all kinds of things. I'm going to share a little bit uh, uh, later on in the Radio Family Journal entry for today, some of those thoughts. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to be back with a story from... Uh, well, it's one of the most famous pieces of Irish mythology that there is, an O'Shane story, O'Shane in the Isle of Tirnanog. It's uh, uh, Brian Fox Ellis who's going to bring it to you, and you won't want to miss it. It's a story about youth and about mortality and about oh, love and even a little bit about uh, the weird way that Time works in some stories, especially the way that time works between a real place and a magical place. There are a lot of stories like this about a magical land, a magical place where time functions just a little bit differently, sometimes with disastrous effects, right? I mean, if you've ever read the Narnia books, you know that time in Narnia moves just a little bit differently than it does back in England, back in the regular world, right? And of course, uh, there are stories like the soldier's tale, Stravinsky's story about the soldier who sells his violin to the devil in exchange for a book that tells the future. And he goes to the devil's kingdom and finds that when he thought that he'd only spent three days there, he's really spent three years there. Well, this is that kind of story. And it's coming up. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. 
It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Apple Seed. Before the break, uh, you heard a story by Stephen Crane, who died in 1900 uh, before he was 30, and who wrote The Red Badge of Courage, the book you were probably made to read in high school, that classic novel about the soldier who flees on the battlefield and is so ashamed that he wishes for a wound, a battle wound, as a, as a badge of courage, and winds up in a subsequent battle carrying the flag before the army. And of course, Stephen Crane wrote a lot of short stories as well, and you heard one called The Pace of Youth, in which Stimson observes a young man making eyes at his daughter and winds up with him sort of trying to chase him down and realizing that there's a pace at which youth runs that he kind of can't keep up with anymore. A lot of thoughts associated with that story. And of course, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. Got a story about young love, a story about moving on, a story about feeling like you're getting old and the young are outrunning you? Well, I do, for sure. In fact, I'm going to share a little story later on in an entry in the Radio Family Journal that I've been thinking about after hearing that Stephen Crane short story. But up next, we've got a story called O'Shane and the Isle of Tirnanog, a story told for us by Brian Fox Ellis, the Illinois storyteller. And, uh, you know, O'Shane is part of that mythical family that includes, well, includes O'Shane's father, uh, Finn McCool. And these guys are the greatest mythical adventurers in the Irish storytelling tradition. We're going to turn it right over to Brian Fox Ellis. Remember, this is a story in which there are some kind of time twists, a story about love and mortality and youth and age. Here's Brian Fox Ellis with O'Shane and the Isle of Tirnanog here on The Appleseed. O'Shane was a son of Finn McCool. Finn McCool was one of the greatest warriors that Aaron ever knew, and a poet too. Now, O'Sheen's favorite thing was hunting with horse and hound. And early one morning, as he was riding along with his favorite hounds, Bran and Skew, they came upon the scent of a deer. They followed the tracks of this deer, and when they came to the top of a hill in the valley, they saw the most beautiful snow-white fawn, the hounds gave chase. O'Sheen rode his horse as rapidly as he could through bog and fen, over hill and dale. And every time they came around a bend, the, the fawn would disappear. The hounds would put their nose to the ground. And off they'd go again until finally they came down to a quiet bay along the coast of the sea. And they saw the white deer as it leapt into a bush. And in that very moment, a fairy mist blew in from the sea and everything disappeared. And in the next moment, another breeze and the fairy mist was gone. And where there once stood this white fawn, there was a snow white stallion with gold and silver braided into its mane and tail. And standing beside it was the most beautiful woman that O'Sheen had ever seen. Her long hair trailed nearly to the ground behind her. She had a crown upon her head, 
She was wearing an emerald green gown embroidered with rubies and pearls. Now Oshin, who loved the old stories, he knew who she was. He recognized her instantly. He had often lay abed at night dreaming of Neve, the princess of the fairy realm. So when she spoke, introducing herself, he was not surprised. Oshin, we have watched you grow from a strapping young buck to such a handsome young man. And nothing would make me so happy, she said, as to make you my man. Will you come with me to Tir Nanog, the isle of the ever young, where the rivers flow with milk and honey? When you are hungry, a feast shall appear. Will you come with me to the fairy realm, the land of the ever young? Will you be my husband, she said. Now, let me pause here and ask all of you if the most gorgeous girl in the world asked you to go with her to the land of the ever young, Ternanog, where you could live forever, how many of you'd say yes? Why, of course! Oshin leapt down off his horse. He crossed the strand and he fell to one knee beside her. He said, I've dreamed of this day. Nothing would make me so happy. I would love to go. She climbed back onto the horse and offered him her hand. He climbed onto the stallion behind her. And just in that moment, Finn McCool, his father, and the Fianna came into the bay. When Finn saw his son getting onto this horse, he cried out, No! Don't go! For I fear if you leave, I'll never see you again! But it was too late. Oshin had fallen under a fairy spell and did not hear his father's cry. The horse turned itself towards the sea and shook itself three times as it leapt from sand to surf, its silver-clawed hooves touching the crest of each white-capped wave as it raced across the sea faster than the wind at its back, faster than I could tell you and faster than you could tell me, <laughs> until in the distance Oshin saw the Isle of the Ever Young. Tir Nanog rose up from the sea, and even at this great distance he could see flocks of birds darken the sky. Huge herds of beasts roaming on the hillside. The fish fairly leapt from sea to shore. And once more, the horse shook itself three times as it leapt from sea to sand. It crossed the strand and entered a grand boulevard. Oshin saw mighty giants barring the way, lining both sides of the road. But being a bit of a warrior himself, he knew, looking into their eyes, they were friend not foe. When they recognized their princess, the giants parted and bowed. The horse rode across the cobblestone road towards the castle. The castle, more glorious even than Tara. The drawbridge fell. The gates swung open. The horse rode swiftly across the cobblestone court where a small elfin man with pointed ears and pointed toes took the rein. Oshin leapt down and offered a hand to Neve. She climbed down beside him. The king and queen of the fairy realm and their courtiers 
were all awaiting the arrival. Oshin, welcome to the land of the ever young. Oshin, knowing a thing or two about court protocol, he crossed the court and he fell to one knee before the king and queen and he pleaded. Nothing would make me so happy as to call your daughter my bride. I ask for her hand in marriage. The king of the fairy realm grabbed the hand of Oshin and the hand of his daughter Neve. He pulled Oshin to his feet. He raised both hands together and said, Let no man tear asunder what the prophecies have foretold. May they live forever in peace and joy. And with a snap of his fingers, a band appeared, a feast was spread, and the celebration began. They danced and sang for nine days and nine nights, and every day the celebration was more glorious than the one before it. And Oshin fell into the deepest, truest, purest love. And Ternanog was even more glorious than the old stories had foretold. It was true that the rivers ran with milk and honey, and whenever he was hungry, a feast appeared before him. Whenever he was thirsty, a pint of ale was in his hand. He spent his days hunting with horse and hound. He spent his blessed nights in the arms of his true love. And time did not exist. Days swam into years. Early one morning, Oshin awoke before the sun to, to go on a hunt, and just as the first rays of the morning light struck the meadow before him, there he saw the smallest shamrock, and there upon one leaf was a drop of dew, and as that drop formed and fell, that ray of light made the smallest rainbows gleam and a tear formed and fell in the eye of Oshin, as he remembered Ireland, Aaron, his home, his family. If I were a lark in the morning, home in my heaven free, on the wings of the dawn I'd be soaring to Aaron across the sea. He rode back to his wife and begged to go home to see his father, his mother, his friends. Neve pleaded, If you go, I fear that you shall never return. But when she saw that she could not dissuade him, she said, The white stallion knows the way, but promise me this, you shall not dismount. Swear you will not get down off the horse. Please do not touch the earth, for if you do, you cannot return. Three times she asked, and three times he vowed, saying, I miss you now even before I leave. But he leapt upon the horse. The horse rode to the coast. It shook itself three times as it leapt from sand to sea and raced across the ocean back to Erin, to Ireland. But as they approached, things seemed different. 
Oshin did not recognize his own boyhood home. As the horse leapt from sea to shore, he rode for hours without seeing anything that seemed familiar. He looked for his father's castle, and he could not find it. He saw an old woman working in the field, hoeing her garden. The once vibrant people of Ireland seemed poor and weak, withered. He said to the old woman, Where's Finn McCool, my father? <laughs> Finn McCool? <laughs> I remember the story my grandfather told me when I was a young lass. <laughs> it's been 300 years or more since Finn McCool has ruled Erin Shore. <laughs> and it dawned on him. A day in the other world was a year and thus. And what seemed like the year he'd been gone... More than 300 years had passed. Later in the day, he finally found the castle of Tara had fallen into ruins, thorn and thistle grown throughout. He saw two young men straining with the weight of a huge keg of ale. He rode close and with one hand grabbed the cask and tossed it into the back of the cart. But with the weight of the barrel, the strap on his saddle snapped. The saddle slid to the side, and Oshin tumbled to the ground. And in that moment, he aged 300 years. The two young men stared in disbelief as he went from being a strapping buck to a withered old bag of bones. And just then, bong, bong, bong. The church bells chimed, for a new god had come to Ireland. Oshin fairly croaked, Take me <coughs> to the sacred crowd <coughs> for a proper burial. The young men lifted this withered bag of bones into the cart, and they took him to the cathedral of St. Patrick where the holy saint himself greeted Oshin, and the two of them passed the night telling tales of the glory days of Erin. And the scribes of St. Patrick wrote down these stories so they could be passed on for generation to generation until eventually I could learn them and I could tell them to you so you could learn them too and tell them to your children and your children's children so a hundred years from now we'll still recall the glory days of Aaron. If I were a lark in the morning, home in my heaven free, on the wings of the dawn I'd be soaring to Erin across the sea. On the wings of the dawn I'd be soaring till Erin's fair shore I'd see. If I were a lark in the morning, home in my heaven free. O'Sheen and the Isle of Tiernanog, told for you by Brian Fox Ellis, and dang, right? 
Boy, it's tough falling in love with somebody from a magical land. Don't get down off your horse or you might find that 300 years pass in an instant. That story among the greatest hits, right? The greatest hits of Irish mythology. We're going to take another quick break and then we'll be back with stories from Alton Chung and even a conversation with a friend. You won't want to miss my chat with C.L. Salazar. It's all coming up. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, O'Shane and the Isle of Tiernanog, one of the greatest mythological hits of Irish folklore. And, of course, at the top of the hour, a reading of a Stephen Crane short story called The Pace of Youth. And there's a lot more coming up. We've got a Radio Family Journal entry waiting for you, and also a little story from Alton Chung, a Japanese folk tale. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories get into our hearts and minds in so many different ways, through the tales that get told again and again around the kitchen table or the campfire or the living room, through the great books that we invite into our hearts, through the great songs that we experience, the wonderful food that we eat together, and certainly the things we see on screen or the radio and podcasts that we listen to. Here are the Appleseed. We love to talk about all of the great ways that stories get down into us. And we're talking today specifically about podcasts. We've got in the studio with us Ciel Salazar. Ciel, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for having me. This is your jam, man. I mean, this pod- is. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking about not just any sort of podcast, but uh, history podcasts right. that are heavily invested in the stories behind some of the things that we think we know a little bit about, but may not. Right. And the and the, the podcast that we want to talk about today is uh, is kind of timely. It is. So yeah. it's called um, American Elections Wicked Game, and it's an election year. So, yeah. yeah, this podcast takes every presidential American election from 1789, and it takes them one week at a time, and it'll end with uh, 2016. Wow. So so in the podcast, we hear the story of the election from sort of the beginning of the campaign up through the... Yes. And, you know, sometimes we even start before the campaign because there's so much backstory. You never know. So I'm a writer on the podcast and I've written several different elections for it. But, you know, one of my favorites was we started with an election and we start 20 years before it. Hmm. And why do we start 20 years before it? Because that's when the scandal that then influenced the election 20 years later happened. (laughs) Right. And that's when the story of how this character, how this um, presidential candidate, I'm sorry, how this presidential candidate gets involved in politics in the first place. Yeah. And then how the other party gets a hold of that scandal and what does that do with the issues of the day and what does that do to the candidates? So, you're, you're speaking now of a specific election. W- what election is it? Oh, I'm speaking of the first election of Grover Cleveland. So that would be 1884. Grover Cleveland, everyone's favorite president. Right? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I, I think we, we may... We may mistakenly think, you know, that elections of the past were, I don't know, more genteel, more civilized, more whatever. And we're just wrong, aren't we? We are. And, you know, that's the entire point 
of Wicked Game hmm. is to take the the fear, and we hear that from pundits all the time, right? It's never been it's never been this bad. It's yeah, never been yeah. as bad as this. Yes, yes, it has. <laughs> so we can all just calm down a little bit, yeah. Because voters in the 1800s dealt with this kind of stuff, and they made it through, and they were able to wade through kind of the smut and muck that was out there to the real issues and vote for the candidates, yeah. who were going to champion that cause. You know, we can do the same thing. Yeah, I, so, I, I, you hear people all the time, right? And you're probably guilty of this. I know I am, right? Mm-hmm. Talking about, I don't know, what we perceive as the good old days, right? Yes. Times when things were simpler or more virtuous or whatever. But just lift the hood a tiny bit and you find, well, you find not only that are we living in the good old days, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, that, but that there's a lot of craziness going on in just about every era. And there are there are uh, kind of there are windows through which you can go to get that picture. And certainly what a fascinating window uh, the election process must be right. to kind of learn some of those things. Right. right. Yeah. It's really interesting to take a look. Um, some people, I feel like in their zeal for their cause, yeah. do some really underhanded things to make sure that they're <laughs> Their candidate wins, yeah, because they genuinely believe that they have the right idea, yeah. And so you end up with um, elections, and I know if I'm I'm going to say this, and you're all going to think of a certain election, but you think of elections where a Democratic candidate loses the vote just barely in Florida and takes their case to the Supreme Court to decide who should be the winner. And you all think of a certain election. And sure, I'm not sure. going to say names or yeah, years, yeah. but I'm actually talking about the election of 1876. Isn't that incredible? Right? And so yeah. we think, gosh, you know, it's never been like this. No, it has been. And we can find a lot of parallels. And I love to say this. We can find ourselves in history. Yeah. We can find ourselves really relating to the people and the time and really learning from them, learning about ourselves from them. Sure. I love to do that. And I think, you know, every one of us, I think, is tempted from time to time to use phrases like this skullduggery or this villainy or this behavior is unprecedented in the history of America, speaking of whatever, whoever our opponent is, sure, right? Sure. And, and, you know, when you start using words like unprecedented, you know, you might be tempted to say, want to bet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, want to bet? Until yeah. a candidate's wife dies from reading what was said about her in the papers. Oh, golly. It's, it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just asked Andrew Jackson what Rachel Jackson thought of the things that the other people were saying about her. Oh, my word. Yeah. And and enough to take her out of the game completely. It did. You know, she already had a bad heart, but Andrew Jackson blamed John Quincy Adams the rest of his days for the things that his campaign had said about his wife. He claimed that they caused her to have a heart attack and die. (laughs) So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Even just the tiny snippets of conversation that we're getting from you here in the studio are are tantalizing enough that we really want to go listen to to uh, to Wicked Game. Wicked Game. What a what a fascinating title for a podcast about right? election stories. Right. Right. You know, that's an old quote from um, John Adams, who said that he wanted to stay out of the political game because it was a wicked game. Because it was a wicked game. Yeah. Well, again, the name of the podcast. American Election. Elections Wicked Game. American Elections Wicked Game. Find it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And it's been a pleasure for us to have C.L. Salazar with us. C.L., thanks so much for joining us on The Appleseed. Thanks for having me.
great stories get into our hearts and minds in so many ways. And it's always a pleasure to have a friend in the studio to chat about uh, something that they love. Now, that conversation with Ciela Salazar was pre-recorded. We're staying home these days. And uh, The Appleseed is being uh, produced in a couple of different home studios. And we're doing that as remotely, as distant as we possibly can. Of course, I'm working in my home studio. Jeff Simpson, our producer, working in his. We're bringing you The Appleseed in that way. We wanted to let you know that we were duly socially distanced from CL during this unusual time. Uh, we hope that you are well and that you're taking care of each other. we got another story coming up here now from Alton Chung. Alton Chung is a wonderful teller. I just love Alton's characterizations of his stories. He dives right down deep into them and tells them from way inside. This is a Japanese uh, story. It's called The Thankful Statues. Alton Chung here on The Appleseed. Mukashi, mukashi, arutokoro ni. In Japan, a long, long time ago, on the side of a mountain, there lived an elderly couple. There was the old man, Jichan, grandfather, and his wife, the old woman, Obachan, grandmother. This couple was very poor. They would take straw and weave it into hats, and then the old man, Jichan, would take the hats down the mountain to the village in the valley below and sell them to buy the things that they needed. Oh, it was a hard life. One day, the old man's bones began to ache. As the pain grew, he looked back upon his poor life and grew sour. He felt sorry for himself and began to complain bitterly. Uh, In two days, it will be New Year's. I wish that we had some some mochi, some rice cakes, uh, that we might be able to welcome the New Year properly, said Jichan, rubbing his bald head, as he did when he didn't know what to do. Oh, husband, why don't you take these five hats down into the village and sell them? Oh, Then you can buy mochi and we can have it for New Year's. And that's what the old man did. He put the five hats onto his pack and began the long hike down the mountainside to the village below. On the way down the mountain, there was a shrine by the side of the trail with six statues. Four were dedicated to Jizu, the protector of children. There was also a statue dedicated to the god of the river. But the largest statue was dedicated to the god of the mountain. The old man would always stop at the shrine on his way to and from the village. He would burn incense, say prayers, and leave little offerings to the gods. As was his custom, the old man stopped at the shrine and said, Ah, my friends, uh, it is good to see you. It has been a while since my last visit. Oh, it has been a hard winter, and I am no longer young. My bones ache. Still, tomorrow will be New Year's Day, and I would be most grateful if you were to confer your blessings upon my wife and myself. Ah. And the old man went down the mountain to the village. But when he got there, Everyone was rushing about, trying to get their marketing done and to head home. For you see, a storm was coming. 
It had turned cold, and soon it began to snow. By the end of the day, he had not sold any of his hats, and it had begun to snow very hard. The old man packed up his hats and then made his way back up the mountain without any mochi for New Year's. And when the old man reached the shrine on his way back up the mountain, he stopped and said, "Ah,、uh, uh, my friends,、uh, this will not do." And he began to dust the snow off the heads and shoulders of the statues. And then he got an idea. He took off his pack. And pulled off the straw hats and began tying them onto the heads of the statues. He tied hats onto the four little statues of Jesus, the protector of children. He tied another onto the head of the statue of the God of the River. When he came to the statue of the God of the Mountain, he realized that he had run out of hats. Oh my goodness!、Uh, I have no hat for you. I am sorry. The old man did not know what to do. Should he take the hat? From one of the other statues, could he make another hat for the god of the mountain? He took off his own hat and began to rub his bald head. Then he looked at his own hat. Oh, I know. He then tied his own hat onto the head of the statue of the god of the mountain. There you are, my friends. Happy New Year! And the old man hurried on home. And when the old man got home, he was nearly frozen. Oh, you silly old man! What happened to your hat? Come inside and warm yourself by the fire," chided his wife. The old man then told her all that he had done, and when she heard the story, his wife said, "Ah,、oh, that is a good thing, a very good thing. Oh, we have no mochi to celebrate New Year's, but、uh, we will be all right." And after dinner, the old couple went to bed. But in the middle of the night, they were awakened by someone knocking at their door. Who could it be this time of night? Well, they care. They lit a, a lantern and they carefully opened the shoji screen door, the rice paper screen door. <gasps> and there, standing at their front door, were six stone statues, all wearing straw hats. And then the largest one, the one of the god of the mountain, spoke. Good evening. Thank you for your compassion. In repayment for your kindness, we have brought gifts. And the four little statues of Jesus, the protector of children, each came forth and gave a mochi, a little rice cake, to the old couple. Mochi, that you may never know hunger. And then the statue of the god of the river stepped up and gave the couple a bottle of sake, rice wine. Sake, that you may always remember the sweetness of life.、And、then the statues of the god of the mountain stepped forward and gave them a little bundle of dried leaves. And finally, my gift to you: fine mountain tea, that you may always have good health and long life. Happy New Year! And the six stone statues then turned and disappeared into the darkness. Well, the old couple was amazed. They could not believe it. What had just happened? They set the mochi and the sake aside to enjoy the next morning on New Year's Day. 
but as it was cold, they decided to boil water for tea. It was the most marvelous, delicious tea they had ever tasted. And at last, they went back to sleep. The next morning, New Year's Day, the man yawned and stretched and looked over to the woman laying next to him. But what was this? This woman was not his wife, but rather the most beautiful young woman he had ever seen. Oh, who are you? And the woman yawned and stretched and turned to look at the man sitting up, staring at her. Oh, what was this? This man was not her husband, but rather the most handsome young man she had ever seen. Oh, who are you? And that is when they realized the true gift of the statue of the god of the mountain. It had given back to them their youth. And the couple rose and enjoyed the mochi and the sake, and they vowed that they would never forget to enjoy the sweetness of life. A Japanese folk tale told by Alton Chong, the story, of course, The Grateful Statues. And what a pleasure it's been to bring uh, that story to you, as well as uh, the Oshin story, Oshin and the Isle of Tirnanog, from Brian Fox Ellis. And at the top of the hour, that Stephen Crane story, then Stephen Crane story about that old father who finds himself unable to keep up with the pace of youth. It's always a pleasure to share uh, with you, and we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. Storytelling at home and listening to stories together can be more important now than ever. And you can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed, or of course, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Google the Appleseed Podcast if you want to find us, and there's something new just about every day on the apple seed. You know, thinking about youth and age and things that you realize as you get older had me thinking about an experience I had not even any more complicated than sitting at a traffic light not too long ago. Here's an entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the apple seed. I go for a long walk every morning. I've been doing it for a long time, for years. And my walk is a little tricky. I mean, I guess it's a walk. What do I call it? A walk? A run? I don't know exactly what to call it. I walk for a couple of miles, and then I come to a place where there's a circular track around a park, and I run that track for about a mile, and then I walk the couple of miles back home. And I'm thinking a lot about each moment of the walk as I'm on it. I'm planning. I gotta do the long walking bit, or I'll hurt myself during the running bit and then I got to walk the run off or I'll wake up sore the next morning and then during the day I'm thinking about whether I exercise too much or too little everything I do with my body it seems has an effect on how my body feels for the rest of the day and if that sounds like an old guy way to think well I'll just tell you, I'm feeling and I get you. It is kind of an old guy way to think about exercising in the morning, but then there you go. Who am I kidding? I'm an old guy. I remember the day 
when I realized I was an old guy. I was waiting at a traffic light on a summer morning. I had a lot on my mind. I had just been to the doctor to have a hernia looked at, and the exam hadn't been much, actually. It was over almost before it had begun. But I don't go to the doctor's office very often, and sitting in the waiting room and filling out forms and filling out more forms and filling out more forms, well, it made me feel ancient somehow. And here I was, thinking about my own mortality, as is always, always the case as I leave the doctor's office. And here I am, waiting at a traffic light. And as I sat there, a group of college kids, all of them in running shorts and t-shirts, came toward the intersection from my right. There were about eight of them, maybe, boys and girls. And they were laughing and talking as they ran. They weren't even breathing hard. And one of them took a drink from a water bottle, and they approached the intersection, hardly paying any attention to the world outside their run. And they would run right by my windshield, across the street, and away to my left. That's where they were headed. And then, just as they reached the intersection, the crosswalk signal turned from a walking man to a countdown from ten. Ten, the big red number flashed. Nine. Eight. You know that moment. And one of the runners saw it. No one else was even looking. And the runner who saw the crosswalk signal change tapped the guy next to him, and that guy turned to the girl next to him and said something and pointed. And in about half a second, everybody knew that the light had changed and was counting down. Seven, six, and not one of them took an instant even to think. The whole group of them, all eight of them, just ratcheted up to another gear and bounded out into the intersection on their light feet, those feet that seemed able to take them wherever they wanted to go, however quickly they wanted to get there, the nonchalance of those kids, their big, happy, bounding strides as they crossed the wide intersection, five, four, Three, the countdown said, and they were all, every one of them, safe on the opposite curb by the time the counter hit the number two. Their bodies had just taken them there, almost without involvement from their brains. It was like watching a bunch of gazelles leaping along. And they were another 30 yards up the road to my left before I had the green light myself. And then I chugged through on my way to the pharmacy or the grocery store, thinking about these kids, these runners, whose bodies would just do whatever they wanted them to do, without any thought, without any planning. It was just gorgeous. Once in a while, I'd like to come to a crosswalk and without thinking about my knees or my arches or how I'd feel tomorrow and against a clock, just step off the curb and run. Though I gotta say, I almost never mind being the age that I am. I know some things that I didn't know when I was the age of those runners There's a lot of stuff in their lives that they worry about, stuff that when it breaks down or blows up or won't go, they'll call me or someone like me. It's nice to be me, nice to be the guy who is who I am. But I'll tell you, if that had been me at the crosswalk, I'd have seen those numbers flashing and given right up until the next traffic light cycle. No question about that. Or even weirder, I'd probably stop whoever I was walking with and have a conversation with them about whether we should try to make the light. And by then, time would have run out and I'd have to wait anyway. And the truth is, I guess that at my age, that's just fine. 
Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. You know, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. Have you had an experience like that where you feel your mortality coming on, where you realize you're getting older? You know, even those stories are worth sharing. Find somebody that you love and sit them down and tell stories back and forth. You know, it's more important these days than ever before. It's been such a pleasure to have you with us today for stories from Alton Chung and from Brian Fox Ellis, a little Stephen Crane short story too, and of course for an entry in the Radio Family Journal. Today's episode was produced uh, with help from Karani Namunyu, and of course the producer of The Appleseed is Jeff Simpson. It's uh, always a pleasure to have you with us. Find us online at byuradio.org or uh, Google the Appleseed Podcast for something new just about every day from the show. I'm Sam Payne, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's Sam. Just one more thing before we go. You know, we really believe what we say when we talk about the importance of telling stories one with another, especially in a time like this. And you'll find all kinds of great stuff on the Appleseed, but you'll find stuff on all of the shows produced by BYU Radio. Top of Mind, The Lisa Show, Constant Wonder. They'll all bring conversations into your home that you'll remember and treasure. And you can find them all at byuradio.org or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Sam Payne, and we'll see you next time.